Chapter 4, Against Communist Theology When we look back at the high points of the revolutionary history through which the names Marx, Lenin, and Mao became signposts for the terrain of revolutionary science, we are struck with the audacity, creativity, and rigor of theoretical practice. The love of learning and engaging with knowledge, connected of course to revolutionary practice, saturates the terrain. Marx and Engels were extremely well-read in the history of philosophy and engaged with the philosophical debates of their time. On top of that, they voraciously studied economics, mathematics, the natural sciences, anthropology, world history, and literature. We can see the expansiveness of their education, which became more focused and honed through their political practice and everything they wrote. Lenin was also a lifelong student who enthusiastically engaged in reading and writing, consuming innumerable texts on a plethora of topics. It is hard to imagine how he could have had the time to become the political and theoretical leader of the Bolsheviks between the amount of texts he was reading and producing. At a crucial point in his development, he even went back to Hegel's logic, studying it thoroughly to discipline his mind. Similarly, Mao was an avid and enthusiastic consumer of philosophy, theory, science, and literature. In fact, he warned against lapsing into doctrinaire understandings of Marxist theory, just as he warned against scholastic withdrawal. Study and restudy everything in midst of practice, understanding that all knowledge is connected in some way to social practice. Like Lenin, he also returned to studying difficult bourgeois philosophical texts such as the logic, encouraging multiple study groups at the height of the Cultural Revolution to critically study, but not fall under the spell, of Hegel. Stalin and Luxembourg were similarly extremely well-read, and by all accounts rejoiced in the practice of intellectual investigation, though it is commonplace, because of Cold War ideology, to claim that the former was a bore. An entire host of Marxist philosophers, sociologists, scientists, legal theorists, artists, etc., were unleashed upon the world from the writing of the Manifesto to the Cultural Revolution. And yet, at those points when and where the science lapsed into doctrinal repetition and slash or where revisionism began to creep in, we are faced with the inverse phenomena, the emergence of dogmatic thinking, the emergence of lazy thinking. Suddenly the joy of learning, of rigorously engaging with texts from the basis of developing revolutionary science, began to recede in the wake of dry formalism, a hatred of quote intellectuals unquote, including the incorrect identification of academic with bourgeois, a dismal of complex thought that did not appear identical to doctrine, a paranoid suspicion of challenging counterpositions. During the course of the new communist movement in the imperialist metropoles, for example, there is a point where all of the polemics devolve into quote-mongering protectionism of little ML kingdoms, of whose hermeneutics is the most faithful to appear Marxism-Leninism. In Continuity and Rupture, I discuss the possible reasons why this doctrinaire thinking emerged within anti-revisionism, most notably, the necessity to declare fidelity to Marxism-Leninism in the face of the revisionist onslaught, so I will not discuss it in detail here. The point is that we find these moments in a theoretical terrain's development, where all of the creative thinking, all of the love for intellectual investigation, is suddenly and tragically eclipsed by a refusal to think anything but what is accepted as canon. That is, scientific theoretical struggle is subordinated to hermeneutical struggle, with the latter sometimes being called, quote, scientific, unquote, or, quote, philosophical, unquote when it is in fact more akin to a guiding theology. We have again reached such a point, now over 50 years after the Cultural Revolution, and over 25 years after the consummation of the PCP at Rim sequence, within the realm of Maoist reason. It has become commonplace for young Maoists, who in their laudable desire to stand against contemporary revisionism and anti-communism, which also takes pseudo-radical forms such as postmodernism, adopt the same kind of anti-intellectualism as previous generations that is in direct contradiction to the expansiveness of intellectual rigor and investigation that the great theorists and philosophers of Marxism demonstrated. 
They even treat the theoretical achievements of these thinkers as theological artifacts, though they employ the name of, quote, science, unquote, to hide their hermeneutics, forgetting that these great theorists came to their conceptual insights partly because of their expansive intellectual rigor. Although it is worth noting that such dogmatism is a response to the eclecticism that has produced variants of post-Maoism that are not, as noted earlier, free from their own dogmatism, this does not excuse its fear of intellectual investigation and rigor. Whereas the great theorists from Marx to Gonzalo did not shy away from intellectual investigation, and in fact held such investigation to be supremely worthwhile, there is now a troubling anti-intellectual current that fears engagement with any text that is not canonical. All Marxist theorists and philosophers outside of this core canon are treated as immediately suspicious. At best, they are vaguely interesting curiosities. At worst, they are seen as impure academics who exist to seduce the masses. An overarching fear of postmodernism results in theory and philosophy that is not Marxist being instantaneously relegated to the proverbial historical dustbin. Whereas a rejection of postmodernism is necessary and correct, when such a rejection is driven by fear that results in a failure to read and think these texts, to understand them according to historical materialist factors, we do not do our movement any favors. The love of knowledge and intellectual engagement that has defined all the great moments of Marxist development is abandoned at the altar of theological preservation. We forget that the strength of capital was due in part to Marx's willingness to critically read and think through, without immediate piety dismissals, multiple bourgeois economists. Indeed, we would not have been gifted with the materialist theorization of the labor theory of value, the concept of surplus value and exploitation, and the whole host of our core concepts without Smith, Ricardo, Malthus, and many others that Marx treated seriously in order to demystify and elaborate the basis of historical materialism. Today, against this theological eclipse of thought, it is necessary for Maoist militants to follow the example of the great theorists of our tradition and critically engage with those theories and philosophies that, while sometimes opposed to our science, may have aspects worth appropriating just as Marx, Lenin, Mao, and others appropriated aspects of alternative and sometimes hostile theoretical formations. Ajith understood the importance of such theoretical practice, which is why he wrote in Against Avakianism, quote, We have noted that Marx and Engels were not totally free of Enlightenmentalist influences. Today, compared to even Mao's time, we are enriched with a new awareness of the contradictory essence of Enlightenment and its scientific consciousness. Postmodernist trends have made significant contributions in this matter, Though their relativism led them to an ahistorical rejection of the Enlightenment and modernization, the critical insights they offer must be synthesized by Marxism, unquote. But it is passages like this which only exhort us to think thought in a way that it was thought by Marx and Lenin and Mao that caused Ajith to be maligned by the theological currents in Maoist reason. The strongest of these currents coheres in the fourth tendency of contemporary Maoism, Marxism, Leninism, Maoism, principally Maoism, built on the fetishization of the ruins of the PCP's People's War. Failures in thought. To be clear, the PCP during its apex could not be accused of the theological thinking we are examining in this chapter. Upon declaring Maoism as the third stage, this revolutionary movement worked to develop new and creative theories generated by its concrete circumstances. Gonzalo came from the ranks of academia, a philosophy professor who was invested in studying and learning. Moreover, the Rim possessed many currents that would further embark on creative intellectual investigation, though some of them, such as the Nepalese and USA Americans, would lapse into their own dusty theology. And yet here we have the phenomenon of Maoist militants who should be aware of the failures of the previous anti-revisionist sequence, who should be conscious of the fact that the thinking produced by the PCP rim experience was critical and creative, who fall into the worst patterns of hermeneutical exegesis. Such failure in thought is endemic to the quote principally Maoist unquote trend, 
with several outliers and the aforementioned USA American Platform struggle sessions, is paradigmatic of this poverty in thought. Nearly every article on this site reads like a hermeneutic of classical texts, demonstrating a fear of critically engaging with thought itself, resulting in a tragic repetition of the worst examples of the previous generation of anti-revisionism. Quote, this is wrong because Gonzalo slash Mao slash Lenin once wrote X, unquote. The foundation of this principally Maoist trend can be located in the tiny French grouplet that runs the website lematerialist.com and has produced a dogmatic counter-ICM that includes organizations in places such as Afghanistan that have emerged in opposition to the dominant Maoist movement. Although the now-dominant principally Maoist trend in Europe, the US, Brazil, and other Latin American countries sees itself as separate from this French grouplet and its wrecker allies, its understanding of Maoism and analysis is generally identical. Such theological thinking results in a doctrinaire application of categories, as it always has, that eclipses scientific rigor. For example, the principally Maoist trend is wont to claim that all forms of Maoism that do not fully agree with the way in which the PCP conceptualized MLM, prior to the RIM sequence, are either examples of, quote, rightism, unquote, or, quote, centrism, unquote. Such a claim, though, rests on the a priori assumption that the principally Maoist trend is the correct, quote, left, unquote, position. No argument beyond appeals to the PCP's greatness and an assumption of correctness is given for this claim which enables the categories of rightism and centrism to be deployed according to a theological axiom. The claim is non-falsifiable. It is a profession of faith. And just as all deviations from the core beliefs of a religious sect can be designated as heresy due to their distance from these central but presumed axioms, everything that deviates from principally Maoism is by definition a rightist or centrist deviation due to this doctrine's unquestionable status as left. Hence, when utilized in this manner, these categories lose their initial meaning. They are scientific costuming draped over the corpse of dogma, where what is really meant by the word left is a confession of faith, and what is meant by the words rightism and centrism are heresy and apostasy. But why can we not, inversely, categorize this principally Maoist trend as rightist due to its backwards presumption of theoretical tradition? After all, it asserts that it is properly left, only because the claim that Maoism was the third stage of the science was first declared by the PCP, but then, despite the PCP's failure, refuses to accept the later instantiation located in the written sequence. Moreover, it refuses to account for the PCP's failure in a historical materialist sense, choosing to explain this failure according to external contradictions, the PCP did not protect the Central Committee, the repression was insurmountable. Rather than the internal contradictions, the PCP's conception of Jefatura internally conditioned the collapse of its people's war. It failed to fully develop its people's war according to the mass line. All of this smacks of rightist traditionalism, no matter how much a contemporary aesthetics of representation dress up this reality. Moreover, the fact that the three most significant Maoist formations in the Philippines, India, and Afghanistan do not accept the principally Maoist interpretation, and that two of these formations are engaged in the most advanced people's war, should falsify the claims made by the principally Maoist tendency, who now decidedly lag behind the worldwide Maoist movement. The exception to this is Brazil, which by most accounts has a relatively developed mass movement on several fronts. By designating the current guiding lights of Maoist rebellion as rightist or centrist, this PCP fetishist tendency parallels the criticisms of revisionist parties and thus, despite the theological use of left-slash-right terminology, seems to be in a rightist camp. Of course, things are not so simple. It would be erroneous to dismiss this principally Maoist trend as a rightist deviation. But that is the point. We cannot simplistically employ these categories according to a theological analysis of the global state of affairs. The Doctrine of the Synthesizers 
There are three theoretical moments in Marxism, Leninism, Maoism, symbolically represented by the figures of Marx, Lenin, and Mao. What do we do then with individuals such as Engels, Stalin, and now Gonzalo, whose heads have been attached to alternate pictorial sequences of MLM, so that we have five or six floating heads instead of these three political singularities? Those who speak of Gonzalo thought, or principally Maoism, and who even imitate imperialist propaganda about how the PCP called Gonzalo the fourth sword of Marxism, though there is no evidence in PCP documents of this, sometimes provide the story of, quote, great synthesizers, unquote, in order to explain this longer sequence of representation. That is, Gonzalo synthesized Marxism-Leninism-Maoism, just as Stalin synthesized Marxism-Leninism and Engels synthesized Marxism. At first glance, such an interpretation appears to make sense, but at the level of substance, it begins to fall apart. The comparison of Gonzalo to Stalin and both to Engels is a faulty analogy. First of all, whereas Gonzalo was temporally and spatially removed from the sequence of the Chinese Revolution, Stalin was intimately involved with Lenin in the Russian Revolution. He was a fellow cadre whose practice was bound up with the Bolshevik Party, and thus his work on Marxism-Leninism, the work that first gave us the name Marxism-Leninism, is the work of someone practically involved and invested in what would come to be known as the Leninist sequence. Secondly, Engels was not only practically bound up with Marx, but in many ways was theoretically inseparable. A large portion of what is known as classical Marxist theory is the theory written by Marx and Engels. Core works that produced as collaborators, works by Marx that Engels edited, and works by Engels that Marx edited, and it is only Marxian dogmatists who, ignoring the historical evidence and Marx's own words, propagate the myth of an epistemological separation between the two. Let us be clear, the three sequences of revolutionary theory are facialized as Marx, Lenin, and Mao because these three figures were the principal theorists representative of each moment in the sciences unfolding to date. That is, they are the faces of social processes. And social processes are synthesized by way of their being as social processes, rather than by recourse to great men of history. To explain their synthesis according to other and lesser faces is to reify what the faces were meant to represent and subject them to a history of one great thinker after another. How do we actually understand the ways in which these sequences were synthesized then? As I argued in continuity and rupture, in passages completely neglected by those who choose this more dogmatic explanation of theoretical emergence, the procession of sequences themselves are the synthesis. Marxism receives its full synthesis as Marxism through the Russian Revolution and the theoretical work of Lenin. There are other thinkers invested in thinking Marxism leading up to this event who contribute to this theoretical synthesis, Kautsky, Luxembourg, Leibniz, Stalin, etc., some as polemical foils, some as fellow travelers, some as both. But the theoretical coherence of Lenin, as the preeminent theorist of this world historical revolution, is decisive. His work, though representative of a revolutionary social process, is the principal aspect of this contradiction. Next, Marxism-Leninism receives its full synthesis not from Stalin's Foundations of Leninism and other similar work, though this work founds the name of Marxism-Leninism and thus opens up the road to thinking and theoretical development beyond the classical sequence, but from Mao and the Chinese Revolution, paradigmatically represented by long-lived Marxism-Leninism, written against Soviet revisionism, as the polemical concept of what Leninism, as grasped in the sequence of the Chinese Revolution, actually was. Finally, Maoism was not synthesized by Gonzalo, as discussed in the previous chapter must be understood as the product of the revolutionary internationalist movement, of which the PCP, though significant for putting the question of Maoism on the map, was a member. That is, Gonzalo's early theorization of Maoism was bound to his particular context and it is only through the social process of the rim, in a statement that his PCP endorsed, where we find a universal conception of Marxism, Leninism, Maoism that spills beyond the regional context of Peru. 
But it is precisely this procession of five or six facializations of Maoism that obscures the scientific meaning of Marxism, Leninism, Maoism, reducing it to a theology. A procession of great thinkers and great synthesizers in the way in which a non-scientific, that is to say a theological, conception of Maoism is conceived. Such an understanding dovetails with the rejection of rupture and the desire to see everything as a singular continuity. Indeed, the U.S. MLMPM movement have designated my continuity and rupture, which was only ever a sum-up in thinking through of what the main currents of the Maoist international movement was asserting at the time, as putting forward a revisionist, quote, theory of rupture, unquote, and then claiming that it was tantamount to a rupture with Leninism. Reducing the dialectic of continuity rupture to a theory of rupture, while a misrepresentation of what I actually argued, is perhaps the only way that those who understand revolutionary science as an unbroken slash continuous destiny promised by Marx and Engels, can conceive of a position that undermines such a political theology. To be clear, I never argued that Maoism was a total rupture from Leninism, nor was my position on the development of revolutionary science a theory premised solely on rupture. Rather, I argued that the positions treating theoretical development as only ruptural were by and large eclectic in that, conversely, positions that argued for an unbroken continuity were largely dogmatic. The rupture from the limits of Leninism was thus not a rupture from the universal aspects established by the Leninist sequence, the vanguard party, the conception of the state, etc., but from the limits themselves, i.e. the vanguard needed to be rethought according to the mass line, the dictatorship of the proletariat needed to be rethought according to the cultural revolution, thus establishing in the break a line of continuity. In this sense, we are more faithful with what Leninism promised by rupturing from the limits it had reached prior to the Maoist sequence. Hence, this so-called, quote, theory of rupture, unquote, was in fact a theory of continuity in that it established the way in which scientific continuity ought to be understood, not as a prophecy established the moment a scientific guild is declared, but as a series of world-making moments that preserve scientific continuity through what Thomas Kuhn called, quote, paradigm shifts, unquote. To claim that such shifts did not and cannot take place, that there is no experimentation and struggle upon the theoretical terrains of science, is to in fact rupture from the very concept of science and thus assert a doctrine of theological continuity. Hence, rather than seeing MLM as a series of sequences, one through revolution and the result of discrete social processes, the theological view imagines that Maoism was already existent in germ form when Marx was writing. According to this view, the emergence of Maoism is nothing more than a sequence that could not have been otherwise, like Hegel's Geist, from the very beginning. The great thinkers, like Napoleon, are program moments from the potential seed in the work of Marx and Engels that will unavoidably actualize themselves at unavoidable historical moments. In this sense, Maoism is reached according to a quantitative arithmetic that is prophetic, Marx plus Engels plus Lenin plus Stalin plus Mao plus Gonzalo. Although those who abide by this narrative of continuity claim that there are moments where, quote, the quantitative becomes the qualitative, unquote, They only do so because they must, because Marx, Lenin, and Mao use this language, not because they actually uphold this claim. For to assert only continuity is to assert only quantitative development. That is, it is the concept of rupture and dialectical unity with continuity that allows us to conceive of the qualitative transformation of the science. Otherwise, we are left with the simple quantification of successive revolutionary figures. In any case, to claim that Maoism is the third and highest stage of revolutionary theory is to in fact claim some notion of rupture along with a foundational notion of continuity gleaned from the unity of related stages. Asserting that one theoretical stage is higher than another is to say that it is not the same as the previous stage, is in some form of discontinuity, because to be logically continuous is to be logically identical, which means that there can be no higher stages, just as there can be no lower stages. 
Something new is not in perfect continuity with the old even if this newness highlights and unlocks truths and germinal insights in older moments, which would be the continuity preserved in such a theoretical development. If there are stages in revolutionary theory, then there are ruptures as one stage supersedes another, just as there are continuities, as we cannot reach successive stages without standing upon previous theoretical truths. Against Destiny Marxist theologians always go back to the classics so as to assert theoretical destiny. The anti-Maoists and anti-Leninists have a long history of engaging in such a practice. They assert that there is no evidence of Leninism in Marx, let alone evidence of Maoism, and promote either a completely pre-Leninist Marxism or some Trotskyist variant based on the passages they decide are most significant. We know that such readings are wrong, that they deceitfully pick and choose in the way that they assemble the foundational work of Marx and Engels, but this is the point. Our forebears of revolutionary science are not prophets. Going back to them does not solve questions, but, rather and in reference to their own claims, should make us recognize that we can only answer those questions presented to us in our historical moment. There are indeed multiple ways to read previous moments of the science, possibilities based on what they were thinking in their time and place due to their historical and social limitations. The reading of precedents always happens in retrospect. The only aspect that makes any reading theoretically important that allows us to develop the language of universality, is the basis of the theory that is class struggle. That is, those aspects of the previous sequences of theory that are proved by its revolutionary development, that are seized and mobilized in moments of revolution, specifically world historical revolution, are far more significant than those interpretations that have nothing to do with theory's core claims regarding class struggle. Trotskyists, for example, assert a particular destiny without any experience of class struggle, this is why their reading of Marxist origins is simultaneously doctrinally correct, but scientifically wrong. They can find precedents for their theory, as can those opposed to their theory, but they have so far failed to falsify this interpretation. Trotskyists are theologians par excellence. Let's not follow their example into the void of pseudopraxis. We cannot emphasize this anti-theology enough. It should be central to Maoist reason, and yet is obliterated by an anti-scientific mindset it seeks an unbroken theoretical destiny from Marx and Engels to the present. As noted in the previous chapter, qualitatively new theoretical moments define their precursors. They were not predicted all along. To claim pure continuity and unbroken and promised theoretical growth with historically mandated synthesizers and great theorists helping it along the way is to claim prophecy. Moreover, it is to delete two significant aspects of historical materialism. One, its methodological perspective of history, and two, its foundational understanding of the motion of history. The methodological perspective of history presented to us by historical materialism is that we can only understand historical development in its totality by reading the past through the present. This is an unfinished totality because, unlike Hegelian idealism, it remains incomplete. To paraphrase Marx, we can only answer those questions that history presents us with. In the 18th Brumaire, he speaks of history as a nightmare on the brain of the living in that, although humans collectively make history, that is, move history forward, we are made by the same historical process. We can understand how we are made by grasping our present circumstances in light of the historical relations that have brought them into being. Such an insight will teach us something about thinking and engaging with the present. It will reveal our options, teach us something about the limits of our contemporary period and the possibilities of future transformation, but it does not predict the future. Hence the truth of successive theoretical developments did not always exist in the works of Marx and Engels, any more than the exact present we have always existed in the contradictions of the historical past. We can see that the present in these contradictions now, because this is the only present that exists, 
but history could have happened differently. The materialist point, though, is that history didn't happen differently. Similarly, we can see the prefigurations of the theoretical terrain's later developments in the antecedents because these developments now exist. Furthermore, historical materialism teaches us that class struggle is the motion of history, the law of motion of this science. If we accept that class struggle is the basis of historical development, then we must also accept that history does not proceed in a smooth, straight line, but is rather a culmination of zigzags and moments of torsion generated by the historical tension between social classes and their reflection in every area of social existence. Revolutions are, by definition, ruptural in that they break from the continuity of business as usual. The idea that there can be an uninterrupted working out of historical contradictions is the logic of reformism and accommodation, but the capitalist rotors during the Cultural Revolution justified under the principle of, quote, two unites into one, unquote. Those associated with the revolutionary line in the Cultural Revolution argued instead for the principle that one divides into two so as to emphasize the importance of splitting and breakage that defines historical momentum where antagonistic class positions are involved. When it comes to the larger and more generalized historical stage, where we can grasp the great theoretical developments of the science, world historical revolutions become significant, and these are by definition ruptures from the previous states of affairs. They are not predestined, they are not generated by peaceful reform, but are violent breaks from the past so as to establish qualitatively different theoretical continuities. To be clear, when quote rupture unquote is the principal aspect of the continuity rupture contradiction, we mean the rupture from revisionism and opportunism. Contradictions. One final point needs to be made about the theological distortion of Marxism, particularly Marxism-Leninism-Maoism. Theological approaches to revolutionary theory are largely incapable of grasping the distinction between antagonistic and non-antagonistic contradictions. Specifically, there is a tendency to treat all contradictions as antagonistic. Everything that differs from the authoritative reading of the theory is judged hostile, just as priests judge all deviations from revealed scripture as heretical. We know that a failure to recognize antagonistic contradictions, or when non-antagonistic contradictions are becoming antagonistic, has historically resulted in revisionism. Such an error is in fact key to understanding the significant historical moments of revisionism. The belief that the antagonistic contradiction between the proletariat and bourgeoisie could be made non-antagonistic through parliamentary struggle and progressive reforms, or that there could be a, quote, peaceful coexistence, unquote, with capitalism, is the logic behind the revisionism of both Bernstein and Kautsky's SPD and Khrushchev's Soviet Union. Often, this conciliatory approach to contradictions is accompanied by, quote, new, unquote, and eclectic doctrines, such as Kautsky's guidelines for a socialist action program. Hence, it is commonplace to imagine that revisionism only manifests according to an eclectic mode of thought, double down on doctrinal purity, fear all creative applications of the science, and become absorbed in dogmatic devotion to the classics. History also tells us, however, that such an attitude breeds its own kind of revisionism, the dogmatic revisionism that, by treating the classics as scripture, and we need to recognize that what is deemed, quote, classic, unquote, is historical, since the work of Lenin was not deemed classic by a swath of Marxists at the time it was wagered, nor was the work of Mao at the time this notion of dogmatic revisionism was coined, undermines the scientific outlook of historical materialism. Theological devotion to the letter of the law always undercuts the spirit of the law. Therefore, while it is correct to recognize that some non-antagonistic contradictions can and will become antagonistic at certain junctures, it is also the case that non-antagonistic contradictions can be forced into antagonism due to the hostility of dogmatic cadre. We are seeing this now in the Maoist milieu, primarily with the rise of the principally Maoist tendency, but, like all erroneous attitudes, it is endemic and manifests in varying degrees.
What is interesting, however, is the ways in which this inability to grasp non-antagonistic contradictions, though openly justified by a theological attitude towards Marxist doctrine, also undercuts the classical theology. The promotion of antagonistic contradictions at the expense of non-antagonistic contradictions is dialectically unified with promotion of non-antagonistic contradictions at the expense of antagonistic contradictions. The dogmatic and eclectic modes of thought are a unity of opposites, just as ultra-leftism is disguised rightism, and adventurism and taoism are identical in their betrayal of the masses, and that unity is revisionism. Contemporary history has presented us with a paradigmatic example of this unity of opposites. When the RCP USA decided that its so-called new synthesis was the red line of the international Maoist movement, it forced the emerging contradiction between itself and the majority of its former international comrades to become antagonistic. In this specific case, the forcing of antagonism on the part of the Avakianites was a good thing for the rest of the Maoist movement because it revealed the RCP USA's revisionism quite quickly and resulted in a useful series of demarcations. However, it is notable that the group that pushed this contradiction into antagonism was the locus of revisionism. Those who persist in treating all contradictions as antagonistic will most likely be those through whom revisionism will manifest. We must recognize, though, that the antagonistic contradiction forced by the Avakianites was not simply the result of dogmatism. Eclecticism also played a role. That is, the new synthesis is an eclectic combination of classical Marxism and supposedly quote new unquote insights that fancied itself a revelatory assemblage of historical materialism. Hence its use to us for thinking in the emergence and development of Maoist reason, the two primary modes of thinking through which revisionism manifests, dogmatism and eclecticism, were united in this instance. Dogmatism was the principal aspect of the contradiction. Eclecticism was subordinate as a secondary role in the contradiction. That is, theological antagonism was principal, but it relied on a non-antagonistic unity with post-Maoist ideology. The new synthesis was primarily dogmatic in the way it was pushed into theoretical practice. Much of its content, though pushed upon the international communist movement with theological fervor, was quite eclectic. Our experience with the Avakianites, then, should teach us about the ways in which the dogmatic and eclectic modes of thought are united in their revisionism. To be clear, Lenin also understood the ways in which dogmatism and eclecticism are united in revisionism. What is to be done demonstrates this understanding. Those associated with Rabo Chai Daiello attack their opponents for being sectarian dogmatists, proclaiming the freedom of criticism, but Lenin responded by indicating that the eclectic perspective celebrated by Rabo Chai Daiello was in fact its own dogmatism that demanded an absolute freedom from criticism. Lenin's theoretical wager intended to cut this Gordian knot was premised on a rejection of both dogmatism and eclecticism and, because it was confirmed by practice that led to the October Revolution, is justified as part of the unfolding of revolutionary science. The MLMPM tendency of Maoism, along with tendencies of Maoist reason that function in a similar manner, is not as different from the Avakianite revisionism as it would like to pretend. On the one hand, this tendency is antagonistic to all theoretical expressions that seem to betray the Marxist classics, locking itself into the standpoint of theological purity. On the other hand, it promotes the militarization of the party in Jefatura, which are not directly found in the classics and can indeed be treated as eclectic developments, as doctrinaire. Even worse, some of the most faithful adherents to this tendency openly proclaim their devotion to eclecticism by claiming that we should only read the works of Gonzalo and the PCP because everything else to date and everything produced by ongoing people's wars, is infected with revisionism. Even worse, they define all critiques of their political line as, quote, rightism, unquote, merely because they have made the a priori assumption that their line is properly, quote, left, unquote. 
In Demarcation and Demystification, I discuss the ways in which reasoning gets absorbed by a theoretical terrain's provincialism, to the point of being unable to think a region within this terrain according to the latter's overall logic. I called this tendency assimilation, where those guilty of this philosophical error, refusing to take on the kind of perspective that in the past was useful for understanding revisionist developments, quote, could no longer ask the larger questions regarding meaning and clarity, unquote. Assimilated thought is always dogmatic since it cannot think beyond the boundaries drawn by historically received formulae. The principally Maoist trend is one such species of assimilated reasoning since it begins and ends with the province of the opening stages of MLM, its initiation and particularization in Peru treating the boundaries as universal. The U.S. online principally Maoist journal Struggle Sessions is evidence of such assimilated thought. Nearly every article is an ad hoc exercise in maintaining the boundaries, refusing to think through any critiques of its particular variant of Maoism, and demonstrating the theological practice of repeating slogans and terms, defining these terms in the relation to the unquestioned truth of the tendency, and generally failing to think its own thought. The similarity between this kind of reasoning, the reasoning of the Avakianites, and even the reasoning of some of the more fanatical species of third worldism is undeniable. Unlike Avakianism and third worldism, the latter of which we will examine in the next chapter, the principally Maoist tendency is not a post-Maoism or an alter-Maoism. It is a theoretical development that imagines itself as the root of actual Marxism-Leninism-Maoism, purer even than the rim articulation, which means purer than Gonzalo and the PCP itself, since, as noted, the RIM Declaration was endorsed and signed by the PCP. But it is not surprising that a more doctrinaire and more dogmatic form of the PCP's initial and important formulation of MLM has emerged in the decades following the collapse of the People's War in Peru. Such is the pattern of theological thought. After all, a much more dogmatic and puritanical, Protestantism, emerged after the passing of Luther and Munzer, and in the course of the emergence, adopted Luther as its prophet while simultaneously declaring itself in unbroken continuity with an authentic Christianity. So now we have a species of Maoist reason invincing something similar to the dogmatic obsession of Anabaptists that was premised on an eclectic break from Catholicism. Maoism deserves better than this because it is the inheritor of revolutionary science. Nor does Maoism deserve a reversal where the principal aspect of the contradiction is eclecticism, but a secondary dogmatism is retained. Such was the case with the now-defunct Kasama project that, while pursuing a wild creative rupture in the history of theory and rejecting a Viking-style democracy, fell back on an older dogmatism, the dogmatism of a movementism that could not accept revolutionary theory as a science. Another kind of theology is produced by this wholehearted embrace of eclecticism, a negative theology, a fear of accepting truth processes that proclaim a continuity beyond historical rupture. Marxism-Leninism-Maoism needs to supersede theology in its inversion, because it is not theology nor abstract political theory. Maoism marks the current movement of revolutionary science, and those who call themselves Maoists must act like militants devoted to science rather than dogmatists, eclecticists, or a combination of these two deviations. Chapter 5. The Dogmato-Eclecticism of Maoist Third Worldism So far we have been dealing primarily with the first, third, fourth, and fifth expressions of Maoism, post-Maoism that is characterized by groups defined primarily by dogmatism, RCP-USA, or eclecticism, the defunct Kasama project. Though eclecticism and dogmatism are respectively secondary in both cases, the rim articulation of MLM that shares a parallel development with the CPP and the CPI Maoist, the principally Maoist articulation that adheres only to the regional Maoism of the PCP, the vague in-development Maoism that, though accepting that Maoism is a third stage of the science, 
desirous to find a line of descent that predates the PCP slash rim moment of theoretical generation. We have examined these together rather than treating them separately because they have often coincided and intersected with each other. That is, they share a lot of the same terrain. They have separated themselves from each other over time, thus appearing as distinct categories of Maoist reason, despite having one shared a commonality. But the second species of Maoist reason, the so-called, quote, third-worldist, unquote, tendency, has been an undercurrent of the Maoist movement since it emerged from the new communist movement. It is a parallel tendency that, contributing some insights that have adjacently informed the other species of Maoist reason, i.e. the significance of the labor aristocracy, has functioned as something of an alternative or shadow Maoism. As such, due to its isometric relationship to Marxism-Leninism-Maoism, it deserves a separate chapter. This is because it has conceived of itself as separate, existing as a critique of the other Maoisms, since its emergence with the Maoist International Movement, MIM. In this chapter, I will examine Maoist Third Worldism, MTW, as a species of dogmato-eclecticism. That is, while it often falls back on seemingly doctrinaire assertions of the proletariat, exploitation, anti-imperialism, and the importance of the struggles at the global peripheries, it does so in a way that is ultimately eclectic. Due to this error in reasoning, and the practice that results from this reasoning, as a discrete Maoist tendency it cannot fulfill the promise of revolutionary science, of which Maoism is supposed to be the most recent articulation, which is class revolution. We should recognize, however, that there are insights that MTW has generated from which we can learn. As with all the tendencies of Maoist reason, this particular tendency shares the history of the same theoretical and, due to this fact, there are aspects of its theoretical constellation that are not wholly wrong. But as a fundamental approach to Maoist reason, it is erroneous. Furthermore, as with my approach to other tendencies, my aim in this chapter is not to provide a rigorous point-by-point -point rejection of MTW intended to disprove all of its core tenets. Rather, this intervention is guided by the notion that if we want to think a revolutionary theory capable of bringing us closer to communism, MTW lacks the qualifications to do so. Having already argued, both here and in previous works, that Maoism is the inheritor of the mantle of revolutionary science, this chapter is concerned with indicating how MTW does not live up to the theoretical developments of Maoism. The General Problematic A significant problem resulting from any attempt to clarify Maoist third-worldism is the fact that MTW is somewhat heterogeneous. Although Denmark's Communist Working Circle, KAK, and USA America's Maoist International Movement, MIM, are arguably the origin points of this tendency, in the decades since the MIM's heyday, various groups and individuals generated by this origin point have struck out according to their own interpretations of third-worldist ideology. For instance, there is the leading light communist organization, LLCO, which is arguably the most dogmatic and sectarian third-worldist group, and thus the most clearly dogmatic eclecticist, with its claims that it is, quote, the highest stage of revolutionary science to date, unquote. Then there is the Maoist International Ministry of Prisons, MIM Prisons, that, though concerned primarily with agitation amongst U.S. prisoners, sees itself more in line with the ideology developed by the MIM. There is also the Revolutionary Anti-Imperialist Movement, RAIM, that split from the LLCO, which at one point seemed to have the most coherent third worldist theory since MIM, and has attempted to develop some creative concepts of praxis within a first world context. Although RAIM recently dissolved, its synthesis of aspects of MTW is important for the conceptual outlook of those who are drawn to this line of thought. Finally, there are numerous individuals, collapsed organizations, groups that either merged with or are associated with the aforementioned groups. Thus, although I will be referencing various third-worldist organizations, 
I will try to focus this polemic on the core principles that all branches of this tendency accept with a particular focus on MIM and RAIM, which I take, rightly or wrongly, to have the most coherent expressions of contemporary MTW. Labor Aristocracy and Net Exploitation If there is one theoretical concern that makes MTW unique and unifies all variants of this tendency, it is its particular conception of class structure. Since every communist ideology begins by classifying friends and enemies according to the universal class contradiction of proletariat and bourgeois, the one concept that unites every articulation of MTW is where it locates and how it defines these classes. Specifically, all species of MTW generally hold, basing themselves on an interesting interpretation of Lenin's theory of the labor aristocracy, that the proletariat cannot be found at the centers of global capitalism and is thus primarily a third world phenomenon. This is the axiom of MTW identity. Moreover, as with every variant of Marxism's location and definition of the proletariat and bourgeois, MTWism's conception of the universal class contradiction of capitalism produces a general category of revolutionary praxis, that is, how the revolutionary overthrow of capitalism can be accomplished, that is often referred to, following an essay by Lin Bao, as global people's war. While it may be the case that different articulations of third-worldism produce differing interpretations of global people's war, the majoritarian MTW organizations are quite clear that this is the general framework within which their particular theorizations of revolutionary practice operate. Therefore, in this section, I will discuss the general MTW theory of class structure and class revolution. In 1963, Gottfried Appel, of Denmark's KAK, conceptualized the notion of, quote, parasite state theory, unquote, where he claimed that, Due to the preponderance of the labor aristocracy in the imperialist metropoles, there was no longer a first world proletariat. Quote, in short, the theory claimed that the working class of the imperialist countries had become an ally of the ruling class due to its privileges in the context of the global capitalist system. Its objective interests were closer to those of Western capitalists than to those of the exploited and oppressed masses of the third world. Therefore, the Western working class should no longer be considered a revolutionary subject. Only the masses of the third world posed a threat to global capitalism by rebelling against the exploitation and oppression they were suffering, unquote. Although it might be inaccurate to classify the KAK as Maoist third worldists, since it upheld Liu and would later uphold Deng, it was definitely the first third worldist articulation of Marxism associated somewhere in the constellation surrounding the Chinese Revolution, and as such prefigured the core theory of MTW. Moreover, as we shall examine later, the group that split from the KAK would demonstrate the limits of MTW revolutionary practice. In any case, decades later in 1995, MIM's 10th theoretical journal would reiterate the significance of the above conception of the labor aristocracy, though there is no actual evidence that this reiteration was based on reading KAK documents. Defining it as the, quote, international line of demarcation, unquote, and thus, quote, the recognition of super profits extracted from the oppressed nations as a central fact of economic life in the imperialist countries, unquote. Such a recognition meant that MIM would, quote, not adhere to any international organization of communists or joint declaration or communique involving imperialist country parties that does not recognize that the imperialist country or white proletariat is either non-existent or a tiny minority, as indicated in the conditions of white-collar work and the pay of those workers, unquote. In both cases, the conceptualization of the proletariat was clear. There could be no proletariat in the imperialist metropoles since the working classes at the centers of imperialism were dependent on the exploitation of third world labor. MIM went a bit further than the KAK by noting the racist coding of the labor aristocracy since, at that time, 
the imperialist bloc was defined by the nations that had emerged from modern colonialism. This insight demonstrated that MIM was partially influenced by documents such as Jay Sakai's settlers, but was perhaps ultimately regionalistic, invested as it was in understanding U.S. settler capitalism, and thus did not predict the rise of Chinese imperialism. In any case, the basic foundation of MTW was clear. Due to the labor aristocracy, the proletariat at the centers of capitalism was either non-existent or marginal. The revolutionary subject could only exist as a historic block on the global peripheries. Although basing itself on the general conception of the first world labor aristocracy established by MIM, and later, after the publication of Turning Money into Rebellion, the prior insights of the KAK and the groups that came out of the KAK, RAIM adopted a further development of this concept with terminology gleaned, in part, from Zach Cope's Divided World, Divided Class. That is, aware that the concept of labor aristocracy is accepted in various ways by some other non-MTW Marxists, RAIM attempts to clarify the third worldist use of the concept by utilizing the term net exploitation. Net exploitation is a concept intended to demonstrate the fact that the first world workers are not exploited but, in fact, are involved in the exploitation of the third world workers, the upshot being that, since the proletariat is the proletariat insofar as it is exploited, by itself not an uncontroversial Marxist claim, the proletariat class does not exist at the global centers of capitalism. In a small article entitled Net Exploitation by the Numbers, hypothetically, RAIM defines exploitation in the following, and again uncontroversial manner, quote, Exploitation can be roughly defined as earning through work less than the full product of that work. A person might work for a day, make 10 widgets, yet only earn in wages enough to purchase 6 widgets, unquote. Since any Marxist that rejects this definition of exploitation is most probably a revisionist, and since the point of this polemic is not to defend the theory of exploitation, labor theory of value, or the concept of surplus value, I won't elaborate. RAIM then goes on to establish a common third-worldist concern so as to connect the root theory of exploitation to the rarefied theory of net exploitation. Quote, the modern economy is arranged globally. A minority of first-world countries exploit at gunpoint the third world. Subsets of workers with vastly different functions, wage levels, and standards of living exist. Only in such a situation could a worker be a net exploiter, unquote. Here I would argue that the substance of this point, though controversial for some Marxist individuals and organizations, should be accepted as a fact. There is such a thing as imperialism, and it exists for a reason determined by capitalism's logic. That is, imperialism is not just some historical fluke that emerged in a vacuum. The imperialist nations exploit the nations in the periphery, often at gunpoint, and this results in a variation of workers and differential wage levels. The problem, however, is how the concept of net exploitation is smuggled into the end of this fact, thus loading a premise and forcing a possibly false conclusion. Quote, Hypothetically speaking, in today's capitalist imperialist economy, we might see a situation where two different workers each create 10 widgets or 20 total. The first worker, from the first world, might earn enough wages to purchase 11 widgets, whereas the latter worker, from the third world, only one. Through the extreme exploitation of the third world worker, the first world worker receives wages over and above what they actually created. In this situation, the first world worker gets a small cut, the equivalent of one widget, from the nine widgets produced by the third world worker, yet not included in the latter's wages. In other words, the first world worker is a net exploiter." Unquote. How does it follow from the fact of imperialism and super-exploitation that net exploitation, and thus the claim that the first world worker somehow receives wages, quote, over and above what they actually create, unquote, is correct? Obviously, RAIM would argue that more thorough examinations of net exploitation, such as the one found in Cope's Divided World, Divided Class, 
prove the logical coherence of this statement, but this does not mean that the argument is correct. At the most, it means that there is a positivist empirical way to prove net exploitation, just as there is a positive empirical way to prove, as others have unfortunately produced, that there is no such thing as super-exploitation. Any substantial materialist investigation of reality that provides explanatory depth, however, contradicts this general syllogism. We do not have to, and we should not, deny the super-exploitation that develops under imperialism, allowing first-world workers to benefit from imperialism, to reject this concept of net exploitation. While the export of capital allows for the first-world worker to be less exploited and thus live a better life than their third-world contemporary, to claim that the first-world worker is not exploited, even in a limited sense, is to make the absurd claim that there is no reason for first-world capitalists to maintain a first-world workforce in any sense, and that the only reason they are doing so is because they are fully collaborating with their counterparts in global exploitation. If first-world workers are not exploited, then we need to ask why there is a continuous drive of wage lowering, a consistent cap on the wages of first-world workers, and the tendency to casualize labor, not to mention union busting, the use of undocumented labor, assaults on benefits, etc. Obviously, the first-world capitalists are getting something from their first-world workers, just as it is obvious that the majority of these first-world workers, though greatly privileged in comparison to their third-world counterparts, are making less than what they would make if they controlled the means of production. The historic compromise between labor and capital in the first world, though made possible by imperialism and achieved through workers' struggles within the possibility produced by the imperialist context, only makes sense if we accept the theory of the labor aristocracy and super-exploitation, but this does not necessarily mean the completion of first-world worker and capitalist collaboration, and thus the absence of exploitation in the first world. The contradiction between first-world workers and capitalists, though often assuaged by the labor aristocracy and the ideology it produces, still persists. In moments of crisis, it consistently explodes and capitalists, who certainly do not see their privileged workers as belonging to their class, fight for the right to exploit first-world labor. Ultimately, the theory of net exploitation is the result of equivocation, where the concept of exploitation is taken to be axiomatically synonymous with super-exploitation. Therefore, if we argue with the MTW theorists that exploitation is only exploitation insofar as it is super-exploitation, then we have to agree that there is no exploitation in the first world. From this it follows that there can be no first-world proletariat in any sense. But such an agreement is only possible if we conflate the categories of exploitation and super-exploitation. Without investigation, the Maoist maxim goes, there should be no right to speak. But third-worldist explanations of net exploitation and the labor aristocracy are precisely the kind of explanations that emerge from a lack of social investigation. Most often they come from the work of academic theorization and abstract empiricism, and thus can be traced back to the works of H.W. Edwards, Argahiri Emanuel, Emanuel Wallerstein, and others, all of whose investigation were purely academic, rather than emerging from a context of social investigation where one goes out to the masses and positions oneself in a social movement. So what if these abstract exercises supposedly, quote, prove, unquote, with statistics and positivist equations that there is no proletariat at the centers of capitalism? Bourgeois economists can also, quote, prove, unquote, that the third world is not being underdeveloped, or that capitalism is working, by making recourse to this same analytic toolkit. A toolkit that every major Marxist revolutionary has recognized as unscientific since the time of Lenin. The general point here is that when one does immerse oneself in even the first world masses, however minimally, one immediately discovers a conscious awareness of exploitation, a conscious awareness of poverty, a conscious awareness of being unable to live as a full human due to the necessity of survival. If social being determines social consciousness, then where does this consciousness come from? 
It cannot be derived from bourgeois ideology, which is always maintained, even in the first world, that workers are not exploited and that poverty is only a problem if workers are lazy, nor can it emerge in a vacuum, an a priori idea that just pops spontaneously into the average worker's head. But if this consciousness exists, we have to find a way to explain it, to make sense of how the mental emerges from the material, and the theory of net exploitation, by itself, can only deny that it is a fact. None of this is to say, again, that these workers and their reserve army, if their awareness of exploitation resonates with a material fact, are even close to experiencing the same level of exploitation and misery as their third world counterparts. The argument here is simply that the fact of superexploitation does not mean that exploitation does not exist in spaces where the working class also benefits from superexploitation. There are different levels of exploitation. It is clearly the case that proletarianization is more of a concrete fact at the peripheries than it is at the centers, which is why we should agree with third worldism in arguing, along with Lenin and Mao, that revolutions will most likely first happen at the weakest links of global capitalism. But such a recognition does not mean that there is no exploited proletariat at the centers of capitalism. These are two different claims that should not be conflated, as MTWism does. First worldism. Due to its division of the world into a global proletariat and bourgeoisie, third worldism claims that the primary enemy of a revolutionary movement is, quote, first worldism, unquote. In its open letter against first worldism in the ICM, which was written to the Marxist, Leninist, Maoist formations involved in rebooting the revolutionary internationalist movement, RAIM argues, quote, First worldism is a fatal flaw. It is both a hegemonic narrative within the quote left unquote and a trademark of reformism, revisionism, and chauvinism. The consistent struggle against first worldism is an extension of the communist struggle against both social chauvinism and the theory of the productive forces. As such, it is the duty of all genuine communists to struggle against first worldism. Unquote. Elsewhere, in a critique and reappropriation of Sal Alinsky's rules for radicals, RAIM consistently emphasizes, quote, first worldism, unquote, and first worldism, rather than capitalism and imperialism, as the primary enemies that the third worldism must be prepared to defeat. Although the reasons for choosing first worldism as the primary enemy are clearly based on the third worldist's analysis of reality that is built around the concepts of labor aristocracy and net exploitation, there's a dangerous lack of theoretical precision to an analysis that appears to elevate the possible contradiction between first worldism and third worldism to the level of an antagonistic contradiction, if not the principal antagonistic contradiction. Once again, we are faced with a tendency that cannot parse the differences between antagonistic and non-antagonistic contradictions, which was the problem, as aforementioned, and for different reasons, with the principally Maoist tendency. There is something to be said about how the comprehension of antagonistic-slash-non-antagonistic contradictions are central to pursuing a revolutionary project, which was why Mao focused on this distinction throughout his work, most importantly in On Contradiction. While it is indeed the case that revisionism is an imminent danger that a revolutionary movement must overcome and stamp out, it is also the case that we can easily mistake non-antagonistic contradictions as revisionism and rightism, because it is easier to fall back on sectarian dogmatism when differences of line are encountered. In the case of third worldism, however, this dogmatism takes on an eclectic dimension since the locus of revisionism, reformism, and rightism are understood as, quote, first worldist, unquote. What counts as first worldist here is any revolutionary movement that does not adopt the third worldist line. Thus, the outright first world chauvinism of Eurocentric communism is only different in form from these organizations that believe there is a proletariat in the first world that can be organized. To believe that there is a proletariat in the first world that can be organized, and that it is the duty of any communist organization to locate and organize this proletariat, is possibly first worldism insofar as it denies the fact that the proletariat is located solely in the global peripheries. 
Although linking these very different tendencies together makes sense if one buys the theory of net exploitation, it seems quite odd when it comes to actual practice. It is implicitly first-worldist to argue that there is a proletariat at the centers of capitalism and go out to organize, for example, miners around a communist ideology that is also anti-imperialist. The third-worldists will argue, however, that to embark on such an organizational strategy is to deny the fact that first-worldism will necessarily get in the way of one's praxis and quite possibly result in counter-revolution. There is a damned-if-you-do fatalism that lurks at the heart of third-worldism and produces an a priori justification for revolutionary refusal. After all, if the revolution can only happen elsewhere, and agitating for revolution in the first world must always fail due to an intrinsic counter-revolutionary tendency that overdetermines praxis at the centers of capitalism, then the third world is living within the belly of the beast, where, to be clear, third worldism generally finds its home, is justified in failing to mobilize the masses around a revolutionary strategy. The masses are in the third world, and it is thus impossible to practice the mass line in the first world. Here it is worth emphasizing, though, that some of the concerns motivating MTW are valid and should not be dismissed out of hand. We need to recognize that unquestioned racism and overfetishization of a working class automatically classified as white, who looks a certain way, works in a certain kind of factory, listens to the boss, etc., has been a significant problem for some organizations, and that the inability to deal with this problem is often due to the fact that these organizations are overwhelmingly filled with white folks who want to separate race from class, and ignore the role imperialist exploitation plays in class struggle. We also need to recognize that the conservatism and embourgeoisification of the working classes at the centers of capitalism is indeed due, as third worldists have rightly argued, to a labor aristocracy that was made possible by imperialist superexploitation. As I noted at the outset of this chapter, there are aspects to MTW that are laudable in that, shorn from their ahistorical and often quite metaphysical theoretical constellation, are extremely useful for any revolutionary project worth its salt. Other variants of Marxism, Leninism, Maoism, then, are in agreement with MTW when it comes to the problem that First Worldism plays in the movement. Where these tendencies differ from MTW, though, is on the focus of First Worldism as the primary enemy, since it serves as a substitution for thinking about capitalism as an enemy. Such a substitution, as we shall examine in the conclusion of this chapter, prevents concrete organizing against capitalism. For such a substitution is not a problem for third worldism, because the praxis logically generated by its theory prevents it from even trying to organize amongst the first world masses. If these masses are all part of some global bourgeoisie, then there is no real reason to organize amongst them. In any case, by arguing that first worldism is the primary enemy of a revolutionary movement, third worldists can spend their organizational time attacking other Marxist organizations that do not agree with their line rather than focusing primarily on organizing amongst the masses and waging theoretical line struggle on the side. While it is correct to grasp the power of the ruling class ideology, and thus be prepared to expand part of one's revolutionary praxis in combating those superstructural elements that partially determine the base, the focus on the problem of first worldism is primarily a focus on the realm of ideas in that it locates struggle on the ideological terrain by arguing that the most significant problem facing the international communist movement is not the problem of capitalism, let alone the problem of organizing a viable and sustainable movement at this conjuncture of history, but a problem of ideas. One is reminded here of Trotskyism's obsession with the specter of, quote, Stalinism, unquote, that supposedly haunts every non-Trotskyist movement. Third worldists are similarly obsessed with the specter of first worldism. And yet the belief that first worldism is the primary enemy of the revolutionary camp has been a dogmatic conceit from the very beginning of third worldism. The MTW rejection of the rim is a perfect example of this conceit, Following MIM's conspiracy theory analysis of the RCP-USA's control of that would-be international, third-worldists are able to ground their suspicions of first-worldism in what they take to be in a historical fact. 
the rim, which they misunderstand as the property of the RCP USA, ended up becoming a bastion of first world chauvinism and a weapon that undermined the PCP's people's war. Hence the suspicion and hatred third worldists bear for any Marxist-Leninist-Maoist formation that cites the rim experience as significant. For third worldists, the rim was nothing more than a first worldist project that, because it was first worldist, destroyed a revolution. Although I would argue that it is worth taking some of MIM's critique of the RCP USA's behavior in RIM into account, I would also argue that this position regarding the revolutionary internationalist movement, which is supposed to prove the perniciousness of some unquestioned first worldism, is more of a conspiracy theory than a specific assessment. While it is true that the RIM was initiated by the RCP USA, while it is true that the RCP USA's chauvinist behavior led to its collapse, while it is true that the RCP USA might have even founded the RIM for chauvinist reasons, to assume it was simply a first world disorganization aimed at undermining the revolution in Peru is extremely problematic. For one thing, it imagines that the RCP USA was always in complete control of the RIM. For another, it presupposes that every other third world organization involved in the RIM was either a puppet of or duped by the RCP USA, and thus guilty of first worldism. Finally, it assumes that a people's war could be undermined by an organization external to the country in which this revolution was happening, as if external contradictions matter more than internal contradictions, as if an organization that was always conflicted possessed the power to crush an organic revolutionary movement. Of course, this conspiracy theory seems to unwittingly endorse another conceit of third worldism, a core contradiction that is often sublimated and that I will discuss in more detail in the next section. That organizations in the first world, perhaps due to first world political and economic hegemony, are more powerful than organizations elsewhere, and that any movement in which problematic first world organizations are involved must be movements that they command. All of the organizations that involve themselves in the rim, then, are supposed to be understood as first world as dupes of the RCP USA, who are incapable of expressing the kind of autonomy that would make the rim experience, despite its problems, worthy of critical revival. Even if the RCP USA did plan to use the rim to place every party involved in this organization under its authority, and there is at least evidence that it did try to maintain control of the leading body of this organization, a gambit that hastened the collapse of the rim, to imagine that a loose affiliation of third world revolutionary organizations was homogeneous and simply a mouthpiece of the RCP USA is a logical stretch. Especially now, when it is becoming clear that the RCP USA rejects some of the key RIM documents, i.e. the RCP USA's new synthesis rejects the formulation of Marxism-Leninism-Maoism in Long Live Marxism-Leninism-Maoism, thus placing itself in conflict with its former RIM comrades, should lead us to realize that the RIM was an extremely heterogeneous body and not simply a bastion of first worldist hegemony. The First Worldist Contradiction The core contradiction of Maoist Third Worldism is the fact that it is primarily a first world phenomenon that attempts to speak for third world revolutions. That is, Third Worldism is intrinsically first worldist. This contradiction is not a dialectical contradiction. It does not produce motion slash change or even exhibit the relational unity of opposites, but is a formal contradiction and thus, when excavated, reveals an unsettling logical incoherence. The fact that there may be some MTW organizations at the global peripheries, their activities and influence only appear on third worldist websites, and thus seem to be as significant and organically quote third world unquote as the third world branches of the average Trotskyist organization. Generally speaking, the theoretical development of third worldism remains a first world phenomenon. The reason the first worldist origin and hegemony of third worldism is a troubling contradiction is because it undermines the theoretical basis of MTW. If the first world is primarily a counter-revolutionary context where the proletariat, due to net exploitation, does not exist, then how can anyone develop a proletarian revolutionary theory? 
Such a theory can only emerge in a proletarian context. It cannot be imposed by would-be revolutionaries who remain within a petty bourgeois context. And yet first world, third worldists, who are responsible for developing this theory, live within a social context that according to their own theory, is bourgeoisieified. So do they glean their theory from third world revolutions? Well, aside from the way in which they understand the Chinese revolution, specifically through a Lin Bao hermeneutic, it appears as if third worldists are opposed to the theoretical line espoused by those third world Maoist organizations who have attempted to launch revolutions. MTW groups even go so far as to deride, as noted in the previous section, third world revolutionaries for not understanding the problem of first worldism, as if a revolutionary organization engaged in an oppressed third world nation cannot understand first world chauvinism, as well as the first world third worldists whose entire ability to conceptualize the problem of first worldism is premised on their privileged existence at the centers of capitalism. None of this is to say that theories that originate from first world context cannot be useful for third world revolutionaries, or that a revolutionary movement must only draw upon the ideology it spontaneously develops in the course of its particular struggle. To make such an argument, after all, would be to reject Marxism due to its European origins. The theory of third worldism, however, since it is precisely concerned with autonomy of the third world and the problem of first world chauvinism, cannot help but experience its exportation as a contradiction because it is an ideology that is precisely about the revolutionary status of third world revolution in the face of first world chauvinism, the latter being the primary contradiction of world revolution. Another possible way to escape the contradiction of first world as third worldism is to argue that Marx and Engels, in their historical context, were able to develop a proletarian ideology despite originating from petty bourgeois and bourgeois social positions. But such an argument fails to appreciate the emergence of Marxism and, in this failure, treats class as an unchangeable essence. There is a significant difference between the philosophy of the young petty bourgeois Marx and the Marx who embedded himself in proletarian struggles. The former only produced, at best, a radical liberalism typified by the economic and philosophic manuscripts. The latter, though on a continuum with the former, is the Marx who would eventually produce capital, and who wrote along with Engels, the Manifesto, in the context of a proletarian organization. We know that Marx not only went to the masses in order to eke out the broad brushstrokes of proletarian science, but that he also sank to the level of the proletariat by the time he wrote Capital, so much so that he had to continually pawn his winter coat and rely on monies received from Engels' bourgeois family. So where is the moment that the first world third worldists have embedded themselves in those proletarian masses that, according to their theory, exist only at the global peripheries? It is clear that the third worldist academic intellectuals of yesterday and today, the Emanuels and the Wallersteins, have not embarked on such proletarianization. I think it is also safe to assume that MIM, LLCO, and RAIM have also not pursued this process of declassing. They cannot, without leaving the comfort of the first world, and it is clear that the most significant third world Marxist revolutions are disinterested in their insights. The upshot of MTW's core formal contradiction is terribly chauvinist. First world third worldists will perform the mental labor of theory. Third world revolutionaries will perform the manual labor of actually making revolution according to this theory. The former group, after all, cannot make revolution since they are not in the third world. They can only provide the guidelines to prepare for world-building revolutionary activities of the global proletariat. The latter group, being the authentic proletariat, is historically destined to kick off the global revolution, but only if they accept the perspective of the first world third worldists. After all, if they reject the theory that the first worldism, as conceptualized by MTWs, is the primary contradiction, they are doomed to revisionism. 
To be fair, there are third worldist organizations that have attempted to theorize creative ways in which to approach revolutionary praxis, despite the fact that they operate within a first world context where there cannot be, according to the theory of net exploitation, a viable proletarian class. The revolutionary anti-imperialist network, for example, uses the metaphor of a 21st century John Brown so as to argue that, quote, behind enemy lines, we consider our circumstances and focus on areas where we can effectively contribute to revolutionary struggle, unquote. Elsewhere, RAIM speaks of preparing certain elements of the petty bourgeois first world masses for their future dissolution into the ranks of the proletarian by organizing them around wedge issues, such as patriarchy and national oppression, with the aim of a, quote, revolutionary class alliance for proletarian revolution, unquote. Here the praxis is one of, quote, class suicide, unquote, an attempt to sabotage imperialism from behind enemy lines, but with the goal of some united front between these 21st century John Browns and the international proletariat of the third world. Such a strategic line is rather vague, however, and relies heavily on the revolutionary heavy lifting being done by others. In fact, the only viable revolutionary practice for third worldism is a practice embarked on by Denmark's MKA that split from the aforementioned KAK in 1978. Eventually known as the Blekingod Group, cadre of the MKA went underground to carry out armed expropriations so as to provide material support for third world revolutionary movements. Reasoning that there was no proletariat in the first world and the only authentic proletarian movements were in the third world, the MKA followed their ideological line to its most rigorous revolutionary conclusion. Functioning as a clandestine commando movement, the MKA robbed banks and armored trucks to provide direct material support for revolutionary movements in the third world. They did not leave any manifestos about their expropriations. They did nothing to build a party in the first world because they felt that there was no proletariat in their country to mobilize. Rather than proclaim the virtues of third world revolutions and spend their time attacking the first worldism of their Marxist counterparts in Denmark, as the KAK had done, they decided that the only useful activity their ideological line permitted was to steal money from the imperialist state and give it to armed movements in the global peripheries. It was not until these members of the MKA were caught at the end of the 1980s that the Danish state realized it was dealing with revolutionaries rather than professional thieves. Thus, if MTW is to follow its theoretical commitments to their logical conclusion, then the revolutionary practice of its adherence can only resemble that of the MKA. What ultimately disqualifies MTW from correctly representing Maoist reason is that it has no logical basis upon which to develop its theoretical insights. If there is no proletariat in the imperialist metropoles, and thus no proletarian movement, the first world third worldist cannot make a correct assessment of anything since it cannot practice the mass line. With no revolutionary masses in which to embed a revolutionary movement, because these revolutionary masses are elsewhere, how can it test its ideas, struggle with the masses, and thus develop theory through practice? Considering that MTW disagrees with the assessments of the most significant third world Maoist movements regarding the first world proletariat, it is not as if it is learning from the revolutionary masses it claims to valorize either. Thus, even if MTW is correct, it has no way of knowing it is correct, or developing a theory regarding its correctness, since it has no means of testing these ideas in practice. That is, MTW is not falsifiable and thus not scientific. And if it is not scientific, then it is disqualified from Maoist reason. Chapter 6. Left and Right Opportunist Practice Beyond the various trends in Maoism, and beyond the registers of dogmatism and eclecticism, there are also errors in practice that Maoism did not originate, but nevertheless inherited. These erroneous practices are traditionally categorized as right and left opportunism. More specifically, economism slash workerism is the right opportunist characteristic, and adventurism or hyperactivism is the left opportunist characteristic. 
Although it is the case that some Maoist trends might lean more towards one of these characteristics rather than another, i.e. to date it seems as if the principally Maoist trend is often drawn to left opportunism, they exist autonomously as intersecting vectors of practice. There are reasons why these errors in practice manifest. The right opportunist pattern of practice emerges out of the laudable desire, driven by a particular appreciation of the mass line, to embed the organization in the working class. A quote, back to the factory, unquote, sensibility, often provoked as a reaction to an activist style of work that is divorced from the working class, leads to organizations giving up a clear communist program in the interest of immersing themselves in workers' struggles on the terms of these struggles, which often leads to economism or a fetishization of the working class in itself. That is, such a fetishization is driven by the assumption, which is often unconscious, that, since the proletariat is the agent of revolution, then every worker will have an inborn proletarian consciousness that only needs to be unlocked and valorized in the course of struggle. Although Mao should be aware that, as Lenin pointed out, revolutionary consciousness comes from, quote, the outside, unquote, the outside here being an organized party project, a particular interpretation of the mass line will get caught up in the exhortation that revolutionary truth comes, quote, from the masses, unquote, forgetting that the other part of the dialectical definition to the masses is equally important. It is indeed necessary to embed ourselves in the masses, and it is indeed the case that figuring out how to do this is often quite difficult, but doing so without a party program, or by suspending a party program, will do very little to build a viable project. We have already witnessed the results of such attempts, the way in which the best organizers are pulled into economic struggle and their politics liquidated, and yet some Maoists continue to persist in this erroneous practice. On the other hand, the left opportunist style of work leaves much to be desired and, in some cases, encourages Maoists to reject it in favor of right opportunism. Left opportunism can manifest as adventurism, where an organization without roots in the masses embarks on military or quasi-military experiments in the hope of using such experiments to draw the masses into its orbit. Another manifestation is the activist posturing of waving the red flag to see who falls under it, focusing mainly on, quote, correct, unquote, ideological posturing. Both manifestations apply a to-the-masses line without very much consideration of what it means to think from the masses, often believing that this left opportunist can be tested amongst the masses as a substitute for onerous mass work. Here we must remember that left opportunism is not actually left, but only masquerades as such. It is another rightism with, quote, left, unquote, characteristics. Unlike right opportunism, this deviation is generated by a correct assessment of its opposite deviation. In the face of abject economism and liquidationism, the need for programmatic purity manifests as an overcorrection. Hence, we should examine and critique these erroneous styles of practice so as to understand how a Maoist party of the new type must strike the correct position between such deviations. While it must be admitted that locating the correct position between right and left opportunism is always difficult, for the right opportunist, everything left of its right opportunism, and for the left opportunist, vice versa, by understanding the general meaning of right and left opportunism, we can get closer to what a correct line on Maoist organizational practice can and should be. Right opportunism. As noted, right opportunism tends to manifest when an organization embraces a quote, back to the factories, unquote, ethos, and focuses on seeding its cadre into what it has identified as key working class organizations. Industries at the point of production, labor unions, and labor leadership. During the new communist movement, a variety of Marxist-Leninist grouplets sent their memberships into working class spaces that were identified as important spaces in the hope of embedding themselves in the working class and growing the organization from this embedment. As aforementioned, the impulse behind this practice is laudable, for we should be trying to embed Maoist organizations in the deepest strata of the exploited and oppressed masses. 
The danger, however, is that the overvalorization of quote, authentic unquote, working class spaces results in a kind of workerism where we might lose sight of how a revolutionary party must exist as an autonomous entity that sends its cadre to the masses without being absorbed and liquidated in the workerist style of practice. As I write these words, members from the Maoist organization I have supported for nearly a decade have chosen to break from this organization and start from square one by focusing purely on workplace organizing without a party program. Their hope is to build a new revolutionary party with a new program by getting involved in the day-to-day -day struggles of the working class without a political plan beyond a vague Maoism. The party no longer comes from outside, according to this approach, but is built through economic struggle. But we should know by now that the working class by itself, without a revolutionary proletarian project, is absorbed in economistic struggle, that is, how to survive and win, quote, bread and butter, unquote, demands. The insight that the working class is better improved through political struggle, according to a vanguard project, is lost when cadre liquidate themselves within purely economic struggles, i.e. getting absorbed in the short-term economic struggles, better wages, better unions, labor rights, etc., at the expense of the political struggle for communism. An immediate problem confronting working-class organizing in imperialist metropoles, though, is the fact that the working class is diffused throughout a wide range of industries and job sites. Hence, a revolutionary organization could possess a large number of working-class cadre who, due to this reality of diffusion, are separated from each other in multiple job sites, as well as being separated from workers in these sites due to a casualization resulting from temporary work contracts. It is normal for workers to bounce between a variety of unskilled or semi-skilled jobs and the reserve army of labor. Organizing their workplaces as communists thus becomes more difficult since they are isolated from their fellow communists. It is only in the large factories where the possibility of a red union conglomeration seems quantitatively possible due to the concentration rather than diffusion of workers. Qualitatively, in some of the imperialist metropoles, this possibility is partially foreclosed by the existence of the traditional trade unions that, when they are not anti-communist, are still organized by capital, and will, at this stage, out-organize whatever small conglomeration of cadre find themselves in these spaces because they have the resources and structures to do so. Why would workers join a red union, proposed by organizers without an outside party machine, or with a nascent party machine that has very little resources, when they can instead join one that can deliver at least some of their economic needs? There is a reason that the IWW, despite the limits it places on its political line, is no longer the force it once was. In other sites of production where unions are non-existent, the quantity of the workforce is defined by a casualized workforce defined by workers on temporary contracts or precarious migrant labor. In these spaces, organizing a red union will have to be clandestine due to the precarity of the workforce or take on the identity of a traditional union drive, the latter of which will thus integrate workers into the ranks of the labor aristocracy and fail to produce communist cadre. The former option, clandestinity, will be meaningless without an overarching party project to guide this clandestinity according to a general strategic line. In order to be effective communists in the workplace, organizing requires an exterior organization with a clear political line and proletarian program. Such an organization begins by gathering the most politically advanced elements of the working class, i.e. those who understand themselves as proletariat in relation to a party project, the latter of which defines the category proletariat, which are at first drawn from disparate industries and job sites. The fact that these initial cadre are drawn from disparate job sites means that they will initially find political unity in the party rather than in their places of work. But as more are drawn in, and if the project remains consistent, quantity will transform into quality. Coordinated intervention in multiple job sites, including large-scale industry, will become possible. Trying to build such an organization, or even butcher as a tiny cadre organization, 
by solely focusing on traditional workplace organizing will result in tailing the masses. Left opportunism. So-called left opportunism often emerges as a response to the right opportunism discussed above, though variants of the latter are also sometimes responses to practices of left opportunism. The relationship of these two types of opportunism is a dialectical spiral where one is generated by the other and vice versa, forming a totality of opportunistic deviation. Hence, left opportunism emerges to overcorrect the errors of right opportunism, and another version of right opportunism emerges to overcorrect the errors of left opportunism, and so on and so forth. But at the end of the day, they are both part of the same opportunism in that they abandon the revolutionary line and thus the masses. Right opportunism abandons the revolutionary line by liquidationism and tailism, and thus abandons the masses to capitalism by refusing to organize them according to a vanguard party project. Left opportunism abandons the masses through hyperactivism and adventurism, thus abandoning a revolutionary line since such a line does not matter if it is separated from the day-to-day -day struggles of the masses. One version of left opportunism is the singular focus on an ideological activism of, quote, waving the red flag to see who falls under it, unquote. Although it is necessary for vanguard projects to engage in such ideological activity to locate potential recruits, the reduction of political activity to this kind of hyperactivism is identical to street missionaries who stand on the corner and preach the book of revelations to the unsaved, hoping to win people over by the word of God. Agitation is necessary, and those who get caught in the right opportunist deviation also understand this, quote, let's justify our red union with the newspaper, unquote, though their agitation will necessarily disguise their political line. But agitating for communism without organizing in ways that are not purely agitational is simply to dictate to the masses. The masses do not necessarily care about the correct understanding of communism. They need to be won over. And the only way they can be won over is not by pure agitation, though such agitation might win some recruits, but by mass work. Another version of left opportunism, which often emerges in relation to the first, is adventurism. Foucaultism, where a small organization engages in military operations in the hope of rallying the masses to its line by prematurely attacking the state, is a well-known form of such adventurism. But some formulations of Maoism, though rejecting Foucaultism in theory, erroneously conceive of people's war in a similar manner by initiating militant sequences and calling such militancy, quote, mass work, unquote. By reducing the vanguard party to a purely military function without a larger apparatus of mass work, and by hoping to build it through a purely military approach, one runs the risk of alienating the very masses that need to be won over and conflating armed propaganda with a new stage of struggle, despite the fact that such a stage has not been reached. Left opportunism is thus a deviation in practice that separates an organization from the masses, encourages commandism and elitism, and operates by dictating the correct political line to those it has failed to win over. Like right opportunism, left opportunism fails to grow a revolutionary organization. Left opportunism isolates itself from the masses while constantly speaking for them in the interest of political immediacy. To be fair, the problem of political immediacy is meaningful. We need to establish and grow revolutionary movements as soon as possible, since the stakes of, quote, socialism or barbarism, unquote, are larger than they have ever been. Deviations of the correct position, it must be said, are often generated by good intentions. Even Mao and his allies understood that some opportunists were motivated by good intentions, the problem was that these intentions meant very little if they were unscientific. So whereas right opportunism ignores political immediacy in the interest of economic immediacy, left opportunism is guilty of the opposite judgment. In the hope of building socialism as soon as possible, sustained work amongst the masses is abandoned in the interest of agitation and abstract militancy. Abandonment of struggle. 
Whereas right opportunism focuses on immediate economic demands, left opportunism focuses on immediate political demands. Quote, right opportunism openly abandons the struggle for the final aim of socialism and the dictatorship of the proletariat and seeks to reduce the proletariat struggle to mere reforms and small changes, e.g. reformist leaders in the trade union movement, their vision is party. Quote, left unquote opportunism abandons the struggle for immediate political demands and thus abandons the struggle to mobilize forces necessary to make revolution which it claims are worthless or impossible to achieve, e.g. the former terrorist organizations in Quebec, the FLQ, unquote. Opportunism is ultimately an abandonment of struggle, even if its right and left expressions pretend otherwise. As aforementioned, Maoism can be sucked into these deviations through a misunderstanding of the mass line. When from the masses is overemphasized, we end up with right opportunism. When to the masses is overemphasized, we end up with left opportunism. In order to avoid both deviations, we need to think what it means to proclaim from the masses and to the masses. To think both aspects of the theory of mass line simultaneously is to avoid both right and left forms of deviation, but, as I have maintained, such dialectical thinking evades both dogmatists and eclecticist perspectives, both of which can generate either right or left opportunist styles of practice. There is a dogmatic right opportunism, just as there is an eclectic right opportunism. The former resembles the style of classical communist, quote, insurrectionist, unquote, work, where the cadre see themselves in a union so as to take control of the most organized elements of the working class, the most organized meaning the unions, and generate a communist break. The latter resembles approaches to economism where, quote, red union, unquote, projects seek to replicate IWW styles of work, piggyback on existing union movements, chase down existing struggles, and seek to build party projects through a variety of creative, but overly imaginative workerist schemes. Simultaneously, there is a dogmatic left opportunism and an eclectic left opportunism. The former resembles Foucault's styles of militancy, where the guerrilla manifests before the masses so as to ignore the masses, or pseudo-PPW initiatives where the mass work is liquidated within a small party, transformed into a solely military project. The latter resembles various hyperactivist styles of work, guerrilla theater, creative versions of waving the red flag as a beacon for possible recruits, wild new approaches to political immediacy. And in both right and left instances of opportunism, there are combinations of the dogmatic and eclectic registers. As aforementioned, the dogmatic and eclectic are not discrete categories. They intermingle just as much as they proclaim opposition to each other. In order to understand these deviations and why they are deviations, however, we need to ask the most important question of Maoist reason, how do we make revolution? Chapter 7. Making Revolution from its very inception, Marxism's prime concern has been making proletarian revolution. Although its scientific strength is indeed about demystifying social and historical phenomenon, and thus generating the conceptual tools with which to permit the concrete analysis of the concrete situation, it is not merely descriptive. As Badu pointed out back in his Marxist-Leninist stage, all of Marxism's core statements are also prescriptive. Quote, Marxism comprises many principles, unquote, wrote Mao, Quote, but in the final analysis, they can all be brought back to a single sentence. It is right, meaning justified, to rebel against the reactionaries, unquote. And Badu, before departing down the lost road of post-Maoism, recognized this statement as an essential philosophical thesis for Marxism, where we are exhorted by Mao to recognize that the descriptive principles of Marxism are, in the final analysis, simultaneously prescriptive. That is, Marx and Engels did not intend historical materialism to simply be the discipline of describing the precise nature of history and society. Such insights were only gleaned from a theory that treated class revolution as its primary law of motion, and thus intended to serve and develop this law of motion. 
Of course, it is the case that various academic iterations of Marxisms have sequestered themselves from its prescriptive demands. At best, such interpretations make these prescriptive elements into abstract principles functioning beyond a distant horizon. At worst, some Marxist intellectuals search for evidence that, despite the analysis of historical materialism, Marx's political commitments were not much different from liberalism. This was indeed the line of dissent demarcated by Bernstein, Kautsky, and every classical revisionist. But we must remember that in 1847, when the League of the Just was forced to become the Communist League, it was because Marx and Engels drew a line of demarcation between the revolutionary theory of historical materialism that they were beginning to construct and the utopian liberalism of Wilhelm Weitling and the Proudhon sympathizers. Marx and Engels have embarked on constructing historical materialism then to provide a scientific foundation for, quote, the real movement which abolishes the present state of things, unquote. And they sought the, quote, conditions of this movement from the premises now in existence, unquote. That is, they developed historical materialism according to the very principle that Lenin would later articulate, quote, without revolutionary theory, there can be no revolutionary movement, unquote. Marxism is essentially revolutionary theory, and since this theory founded itself as a science, it is also the science of revolution. Descriptive claims that Marxism is the science of history or the science of social formations must necessarily intersect with prescriptive claims. For if the law of motion of this science of history is class revolution, then its pursuit must be revolutionary since the concept of revolution is its scientific basis. Hence, being the current stage of development in revolutionary science, Maoism is ultimately concerned with making communist revolution and carrying this revolution forward further than the previous world historical moments. I have already argued why Maoism as a whole is the inheritor of Marxism, particularly in continuity and rupture, so I will not repeat these arguments here. When it comes to the problematic of Maoist reason, however, we must think this basis of Marxism as a whole. The point here is that we should be able to judge what variant of Maoism is the correct variant according to the principle of making revolution. For reasons of simplicity, we will call this principle the primary principle and assess what variants of Maoist reason are best equipped to satisfy its demands. Although we have already critiqued the different Maoist tendencies in previous chapters, it is worth reviewing them one more time according to this primary principle. Articulation 1. The post-Maoist articulations of Maoist reason cannot satisfy the primary principle. None of the academic and or activist versions of post-Maoism have generated anything that counts as revolutionary experience. While it is indeed the case that the more dogmatic expressions of post-Maoism, represented by the current phase of the RCP-USA, possesses a history of revolutionary agitation, this history was during its existence in the new communist movement, leading up to when, as a founder of the revolutionary internationalist movement, it pursued Marxism-Leninism-Maoism. Upon breaking from both the RIM and MLM, reorienting itself according to the so-called, quote, new synthesis, unquote, or the new communism, its departure down the post-Maoist path has cemented its divorce from the masses and cult-like development. More eclectic post-Maoist expressions such as the defunct Kasama Project and the Badu Lazarus La Organisation Politique have fared even less effective. Theoretically, post-Maoism is confused because its attempts to transgress the limits of Maoism are the result, for different reasons given by different post-Maoist expressions, of a failure to properly conceptualize the development of historical materialism, particularly the Maoism from which this articulation hopes to depart. That is, a flawed version of Maoist reason is used to justify the departure from Maoism without solving the problems presented by Maoism in the only way they can be solved, through another world historical revolution. As Thomas M. writes in the 2017 issue of Arsenal, quote, The fact that most post-Maoists rely on the theory of the mass line to demand post-Maoism might demonstrate that Maoism has not been superseded, particularly since the mass line, in its relation to the party, still needs to be fully explored and creatively articulated by Maoists. 
In some ways, the whole post-Maoism problematic is a result of the lack of clarity around the meaning of Marxism, Leninism, and Maoism, unquote. The author goes on to argue that much of what is expressed as post-Maoist is in fact pre-Maoist, and that it comes from groups and individuals whose theoretical training was in an anti-revisionist Marxist-Leninist circles, and so, despite the fact that some of them may have been familiar with the Rim, were always thinking according to a Mao Zedong thought way of seeing the world. According to rumor, the RCP USA never really accepted that Maoism was a third stage of revolutionary science, and were outvoted by the rest of the Rim into accepting the long-lived Marxism-Leninism-Maoism statement. Hence, the Kasama Project, despite rejecting Avakianite dogmatism, began with this same refusal of Maoism as a third stage due to its training within the RCP USA ranks during the time its founding members still agreed with the pre-new synthesis of Avakianite project. The bad do Lazarus expression in post-Maoism fares even worse because, without any rim or rim-adjacent experience, its ideologues really did jump from Mao Zedong thought to post-Maoism without any experience of Maoism qua Maoism. Thomas M.'s article on post-Maoism is called A Theory in Search of a Theory. We can add that the articulation of post-Maoism is Maoist reason in search of Maoist reason. And being lost on the level of theory and reason, it becomes even more lost on the level of practice. What is the theory of making revolution that it has managed to generate in all this time, since it has attempted to push against the boundaries declared by Maoism, that it has often refused to properly articulate? Absolutely nothing. Articulation 2 the third-worldist articulation of Maoist reason also fails to satisfy the primary principle for reasons that were made clear in the fifth chapter. But let us sum up these ideas according to the primary principle. Although it is indeed the case that MTW upholds third-world revolutionary movements, pointing to these as proof that in comparison there can be nothing similar in the imperialist metropoles, not a single one of these movements has upheld the third-worldist ideological political line. Not only have there not been meaningful revolutionary movements waged under the doctrine of third-worldism, the fact that third-worldism is a theory created by individuals and groups in the so-called first world, and thus primarily about this first world, has annexed it from the revolutionary movements it tends to cite. If revolutionary theory emerges from and is developed through revolutionary movements, then MTW cannot, as previously discussed, even participate in such theory. To reiterate, if there is no real proletariat in the imperialist metropoles, or at least not a proletariat significant enough which to build a revolution, no revolutionary masses in a context where the labor aristocracy has embourgeoisieified the vast majority of the working class, then third-worldism has disqualified itself from being able to make a rigorous contribution to the science. Since the laboratory is class struggle and the scientists are the cadre engaged with the exploited and oppressed masses, to assert that there are no such masses, at least not in a meaningful sense, in the context where one organizes is to also assert that you have no basis upon which to develop your theoretical claims. A lack of proletarian practice means, and this is essential to what Marxism is, the lack of a concrete space upon which to abstract the kind of theoretical claims that fulfill the demands of this science. The primary principle can never be approached by the third worldist who lives in a space they have designated as non-proletarian, unless they admit that they are wrong and recognize that there are revolutionary masses that can provide the practice to generate theoretical insights. To make such an admission, however, would also mean admitting that the core axiom of MTW is wrong. While it is indeed the case that the MIM did contribute some important insights to Maoist reason, i.e. aspects of its work on the labor aristocracy, some conceptualizations of the national question, its critique of crypto-Trotskyism, these contributions were exceptions to the rule of its theory and only meaningful insofar as it's partially participated in Maoist reason. With the collapse of the MIM and the lack of practice that is symptomatic of all successive and current expressions of MTW, this articulation of a would-be Maoism is theoretically sterile. Remaining Articulations the final three articulations of Maoist reason, MLM, MLMPM, and the agnostic Maoism, 
need to be examined together because, despite their differences, they are united by the need to conceptualize Maoism according to the primary principle of making revolution, and thus share an appreciation of the formulation of Marxism-Leninism-Maoism. Moreover, there are a number of important intersections, the third and fourth articulations, the PCP-RIM variant, and the PCP-Principally-Maoist variant, agree on the theoretical significance of the People's War in Peru, although they eventually depart on the lessons we need to draw from this experience. The fifth trend, which remains agnostic about theoretical generation, tends to intersect with the third and its refusal to grant the principally Maoist articulation is the most meaningful foundation of Maoism, and thus shares with the third trend an appreciation of world historical revolutions. By dealing with these trends together, I hope to force, by placing them in relation, the recognition that it is only the third articulation of Maoist reason that satisfies the critique of this reason. But I have been open about this from the beginning and, to be clear, this critique has been overdetermined by this assumption that I have chosen a place at the end of our intervention. It was conceptually prior, the guiding thought that demanded this treatise, but it must be logically later because it is a consummation of the critique. In all three cases, Maoism is recognized as third and highest stage of revolutionary science because of the primary principle. We can momentarily subtract the fifth trend, for the moment, due to the fact that it apparently sees Maoism as generated by the Cultural Revolution without any meaningful moment of theoretical synthesis after this moment, though it often searches for precursors and other trends within the worldwide new communist movement. Hence, it often appears to be searching for a synthesis of MLM outside of, or adjacent to, the PCP-RIM sequence, as well as working to provide its own new version of the synthesis. The third and fourth trends, however, both take the People's War in Peru as a significant starting point for Maoism qua Maoism. That is, they both uphold the experience of the PCP as foundational to the theoretical synthesis of Maoism as an ism. The difference is, of course, is that, whereas the third articulation of Maoist reason sees the PCP-RIM sequence as a whole as the generator of Maoism, with the joint RIM declaration being the highest and most concise synthesis of Maoism, the fourth articulation treats the perspective of the PCP as foundational and the prescriptive of the RIM as an afterthought, if not an outright deviation. The question we need to ask, however, is on what basis can we argue that Maoist reason ought to be understood only through the formulation Maoism was given to the PCP, what our contemporary acolytes of this tendency call principally Maoism. If it is indeed the case that the PCP's particular formulation of Maoism, pre-RIM, was the most correct formulation, and if, like today's principally Maoist groups and individuals seem to claim, we should ignore the PCP's endorsement of the RIM formulation of Maoism, then our understanding of Maoism is revisionist the farther we depart from this particular formulation. Such assumptions, though, are only admissible if they are proven by the primary principle of making revolution. The PCP's revolutionary movement was defeated. It did not prove itself capable of being the inheritor of the Chinese Revolution, despite making great strides in initiating the sequence that would form contemporary Maoism. Moreover, other groups within or adjacent to the Rim went further in their people's wars according to the formulations adopted in the Rim rather than the pre-Rim formulations of principally Maoism. For example, the People's War in Nepal, a protracted revolution that began in the 1990s only to defeat itself in the early 2000s, went further than the PCP-led revolution in Peru. Rather than being defeated directly by the forces of reaction, it forced the enemy into a detente and made the mistake of shifting this detente into the realm of parliamentary politics so as to gain legal international recognition. On the whole, the Communist Party of Nepal, Maoist theory, and practice did not reflect the categories of Maoism laid out by the PCP. Rather, it reflected the formulation of Maoism proclaimed by the RIM. With one exception, its notion of Prashanda Path was similar to Gonzalo thought, its own version of Jafatura, but not given that name or importance. And it was this notion that hastened its descent into revisionism, capitulation, and the self-defeat of its revolution. For a while, Prashanda, upheld as the principal theorist of Nepalese Maoism, 
was depicted as representing the legitimate left position navigating between the right opportunism of Baudelaire's Dangism and the supposed quote left unquote opportunism ascribed to Kieran's faction. In the end, it turned out that Prashanda had also become a right opportunist, and that Kieran's faction was the actual left line, and not left opportunist, but the aura surrounding Prashanda path prevented this error from being fully recognized until it was too late. Although it is indeed the case that Gonzalo did not, like Prashanda, lead the party directly into revisionism, unless we accept that he was indeed the author of the letter demanding that the people's work capitulate, but even if this is true, we would also claim it was coerced, since nothing written in the state of capture and duress should be trusted as authoritative. It is also the case that this choice was never presented to Gonzalo, since he was captured before his movement could reach the level reached by Maoist and Nepal, the latter of whom were able to force a peace process that they ended up bungling. Hence, the People's War in Peru is allowed to stay pure, since it was defeated before it reached the position of détente reached by the Maoists in Nepal. We would thus be purist and dogmatist if we did not seriously think through the consequences of elevating Jeff Atura to a political principle. As Michael T. writes, quote, In this regard, the conception of the PCP on Jeff Atura seems to have played a more important role in the dispersion of the organization's activists and the erosion of its influence. It must be said that this conception, which postulated the infallibility of the single leader who embodies the revolution, is widely shared among Latin American leftists. In the ranks of the PCP, it took the form of this commitment solemnly, reiterated by party members. Quote, we who follow Marxism, Leninism, Maoism, Gonzalo thought, subject ourselves to President Gonzalo and embody Gonzalo thought, unquote. Therefore, when it became clear that Guzman was most probably the author of the peace letters, many aligned themselves to the letter's point of view, while those wishing to continue on the path of people's war have not been able to find by themselves a way to renew the political perspectives of the party and provide it with a new leadership capable of retaking the initiative, unquote. Hence, if we are to assess revolutionary movements as scientists and not dogmatists, we should be able to recognize that this fetishization of great leadership is not merely the recognition that some people, because of circumstances, become principal theorists, and thus should be honored as being such beyond their individual existence. We should also learn to examine the circumstances that propel some people towards a position of theoretical authority, combat the fetishization of the name, and recognize that accusations of the cult of personality are not merely lies made up by the capitalist camp to attack socialism, as the RCP USA likes to constantly complain so as to defend its cult of Avakian, but that we are handing them this complaint. It is a hypocritical complaint, yes, because the bourgeois order has its own personality cults, but why should we elevate great persons beyond the level of ciphers of theoretical development? Outside of the defeated People's War in Nepal, there are the ongoing People's War in India and the Philippines that, despite coding themselves as Maoist, have little to do with the purely PCP formulation of Maoism. The Indian Revolution is still connected to the memory of the Rim, insofar as the Communist Party of India Maoist contains organizations that were once part of the Rim, and partly exists because the Rim aided with the peace talks between Maoist forces that led to its foundation. There is nothing in this sequence of revolution that supports the particular claims made by the PCP. In fact, the CPI Maoist is largely opposed to the PCP's particular definition of Maoism, aside from recognizing its importance in the generation of Maoism over and above Mao Zedong thought. And the People's War in the Philippines, which predates that of Peru, has progressed without any influence of Peruvian Maoism, though it has, years after the collapse of the Rim, recognize the singularity of Maoism as opposed to Mao Zedong thought. These revolutionary movements in India and the Philippines are in fact more advanced than the People's War in Peru because they have succeeded in prolonging their existence without being defeated or capitulating, and have made qualitative advancements, nor has their promulgation and proliferation had anything to do with the categories of principally Maoism. Hence, with the possible exception of the Brazilian revolutionary movement, the fourth articulation of Maoist reason has nothing currently meaningful upon which to base its conception of revolution beyond what was already defeated. 
It must admit the third articulation, which was opened by the PCP rim sequence, if it is to recognize Maoism as more than a regional phenomenon, and yet it is continually sucked back into this regional phenomenon by asserting the primacy of the past, that is, of the fallen PCP sequence. And yet this articulation persists in asserting this primacy and categorizes every criticism of this persistence as revisionism. In this way, such a perspective resembles the Hoxha's dogmatic revisionism that accused the Chinese Revolution under Mao of being a revisionist version of Marxism-Leninism due to its unfaithfulness to Stalin's conception of Leninism. According to today's dogmatic revisionism, then, the PCP did not fail because it alone synthesized Maoism. Its defeat was due to external factors, since its synthesis and practice was otherwise perfect. Although it is correct to treat the PCP's inability to complete its people's war as a defeat rather than a failure, we must recall here Pao Yuching's reframing of the question of socialist failure as socialist defeat. It was indeed defeated, and there were internal contradictions that led to this defeat. Again, as Mao argued in non-contradiction, and this is an important theoretical contribution to Maoism that cannot be denied if one is to be Maoist, it's internal contradictions that are decisive. Maoist reason, if it is the current accomplishment of Marxist reason and thus a scientific reason, cannot waste time with claims about theoretical purity and a point of origin that refuses to develop through the insights from successive and or ongoing people's wars. While we must indeed recognize the insights the PCP have contributed to the development of the science in its primary principle, particularly regarding the universality of PPW, these insights are recognized and furthered by the PCP rim sequence, and it is in this sequence where we will discover the ongoing vitality of Maoist reason. Conclusion In 1914, Lenin described dialectical transformation as, quote, development that repeats, as it were, stages that have already been passed, but repeats them in a different way, on a higher basis. A development, so to speak, that proceeds in spirals, not in a straight line, a development by leaps, catastrophes, and revolutions, quote, breaks in continuity, the transformation of quantity and equality, unquote. Thus, to assert that the emergence of Maoism is a third and higher stage of Marxism is also to assert such a transformation where the breaks in continuity are also a repetition on a higher basis. If we are to seriously think Maoism is a new stage of science and not simply a non-dialectical repetition of pre-Maoist Marxism-Leninism, then we have to also begin thinking what such a transformation means according to this basic understanding of dialectical development. If we do not, then we are simply stuck with an understanding of a quantitative straight line of development, where it is simply about adding up the insights as if they were an evolutionary trend. Such a view admits no stages or periodizations of the science, no moments where old and limited ideas reach a limit and thus require revolutionary struggle to overcome the revisionism they may come to represent. Such a view treats Marxism not as a science, but a complete doctrine that generates an eternal continuity. It would make no sense to even speak of Leninism or Maoism since, if there are no, quote, breaks in continuity, unquote, as mere prophetic additives, they would not be higher stages that require those leaps, that break from one stage so as to establish another. As Ajith concludes on the Maoist party, quote, one of the great leaps achieved by Maoism is its rupture from bad traditions of the common turn period, without in the least minimizing its positive role. This must be further deepened. Today's Maoist parties are, without doubt, continuators of yesteryear communist parties, but their foundation must be heights attained by Maoism and the vanguard concept, not the outlook or methods of their past, unquote. Such heights attained, quote, by Maoism and the vanguard concept, unquote, are according to Ajith and the living Maoist movements of which he was familiar, a rejection of the mechanical monolithic approach to organization and one that binds the party of the avant-garde to the mass line and cultural revolution. It is only here, as we have seen through the development of Maoism from the 1980s onwards, where a truly Maoist reason can flourish and thus generate the next, and hopefully final, world historical revolution.
I am well aware that Ajith is now being called a rightist by those elements of the Maoist milieu who would lock us into an emaciated version of Maoism that has not developed since the possibility of such a new stage was first conceived. This charge of rightism, though, is merely rhetorical, since it is only an insult thrown out by those who see themselves as properly left, and thus cannot conceive of any deviation from their line as anything but rightist. Hojaheitz also classified Mao's political line as rightist and revisionist because of its supposed deviations from Stalin's orthodoxy. The irony, however, is that such a rejection of Ajit's insights is by definition rightist. Traditionalist conservatism, even if and when it manifests left styles of political practice, is the textbook definition of right deviationism. In any case, if we are to understand the meaning of Maoist reason and a critique of its boundaries, we must also learn how to think Maoism in its totality, which means to also think its distance from pre-Maoist Leninism and pre-Leninist Marxism, and which further means to think what makes Maoism the highest stage of revolutionary science, by what rationale we can call it a stage, what makes the process of which it is a part scientific, and what scientific thinking means for Maoists interested in developing revolutionary theory. The overall problematic that has guided this extended essay is the necessity of thinking Maoist thought. Those who cannot think Maoism will be those who are unable to answer the questions implied by the above paragraph, the questions that have structured this critique, because of their dogmatism, their eclecticism, their combination of these two registers, or their general agnosticism that would result in an incapability of making any meaningful statement, dogmatic, eclectic, or otherwise, about what Maoism is. Formulaic, confused, or agnostic dismissals to this critique simply demonstrate that there remains regions of Maoist reason that have not yet grasped, and might even refuse to grasp, what Maoism implies and demands. For it implies and demands no less than what was demanded by Marx and Engels, a ruthless criticism of all that exists, but according to a substantial reason that does not merely demystify the world but, in this demystification, generates the tools for the overthrow of existent reality. To be clear, I do not think that the various tendencies vying for the determination of Maoist reason are wholly antagonistic to each other, even if some of them tend to interpret multiple non-antagonistic contradictions as antagonistic. I hold that there is still a lot of room for comradely line struggle amongst these Maoisms so as to contribute to a more robust conception of Marxism-Leninism-Maoism. Even still, I think it's clear that there is only one tendency, the one forged through the PCP-RIM process and its parallels, that has been proven to represent Maoist reason, whereas other approaches are ultimately variations of dogmatism and eclecticism. Although such differences between tendencies might become antagonistic contradictions in the future, that is, when the differences get in the way of making revolution, at the moment they remain at the level of non-antagonism, though the more dogmatic approaches to Maoism like to pretend otherwise. In this context, then, it becomes increasingly important to think Maoism and pursue a critique of its reason so as to sharpen the weapon of criticism. To sharpen the Maoist sword for the overthrow of existent reality through the critique of its general reason is to also plane away that which should make it jagged or dull, and though the dull and jagged aspects of the sword might hate the wet stone that critiques their reason for existence, at the end of the day, the critique of the stone reveals that there were nothing more than flaws, temporary deviations in the sword's cutting edge. Maoist reason will be revealed as the sharp weapon that it is once the stone of its critique has rendered it to itself.